we continue worshiping together today, siblings, I invite you to turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to the letter to the Romans, the 12th chapter, beginning in the ninth verse. Let us receive together the word of God. Let love be genuine, hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with mutual affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not lag in zeal. Be ardent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in suffering. Persevere in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. Extend hospitality to strangers. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Do not claim to be wiser than you are. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. If it is possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. No, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. For by doing this, you will heap burning coals on their heads. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now I invite you to turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to the Gospel according to Matthew, the 16th chapter, beginning in the 21st verse. Let us receive together the Word of God. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and to undergo great suffering at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this must never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus told his disciples, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit them if they gain the whole world but forfeit their life? Or what will they give in return for their life? For the Son of Man is to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay everyone for what has been done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. As we gather in today, you know, the gift of this pandemic time is that we get to do so from all kinds of places, from gardens to yoga mats to beneath the covers, and all of its sacred space. So as we create some space now to listen for spirits leading, I invite you uh, to consecrate that space with me as we pray. Lord, draw close now. 
as we draw close to you in bathrobes and bathing suits and workout clothes. Lord, draw close as we now draw close to you, from backyards and bedrooms, from car seats and on running trails. Lord, draw close as we do now and help us to trust in your promise that when we do, you are faithful to be near. Send your spirit to sanctify in their full diversity all the places from which we gather, that in our proximity to your living word, we might receive a word of life, a word of hope, a word of challenge, a word of peace. And that through that living word, we might in all the many places we are, and the many places we will go from here, be instruments of your peace, justice, and joy. Amen. You know, friends, every time I log into Facebook, I inevitably see or read something that makes my blood boil, that raises my hackles, that offends my sensibilities. Then again, I'm sure that happens to you, too. And if you're like me, in that moment, you're confronted with a choice, right? To block or not to block. To end any future connection you may have with the offending party, cut off conversation, and leave your Facebook feed a little cleaner for commentary which affirms your worldview, and of course, puppy pics. The option to cancel someone is prevalent in the age of social media where everything we say and post is preserved in semi-perpetuity for analysis and dissection. And it's become quite the cultural phenomenon. Cancel culture, popularly defined, is the practice of canceling support for a person or organization through direct and repeated attacks on their reputation. Though in practice, it may simply be choosing to erase someone's present from your life. Politicians, TV personalities, rock stars, and strangers captured in passing cell phone footage have all been canceled, exercised from their jobs, their families, and popular consciousness as quickly as they enter it. At its best, cancel culture refuses to ignore unjust and harmful behavior by anyone who chooses to hide behind their power, position, or online posts. And goodness knows, for our mental health and our spiritual health, sometimes we just need to cancel someone, whether it's a well-known politician or that crazy third cousin who's found us for the seventh time on Facebook. But we must also acknowledge that cancel culture, by definition, fails to live into the fully inclusive, ever-evolving, beloved community that we call the kingdom of God, because it ceases conversation denies opportunity for the transformation spirit is always cultivating in us and in others, and ultimately leaves our communities, both in person and online, devoid of the differences that result in the hard but beautiful work of personal and spiritual growth. A cursory review of today's texts, especially on the heels of Peter's ascendancy in last week's reading as the rock upon which the church will be built, may read at first like Peter is being canceled by Jesus. The rock is now a stumbling block. And long before Bianca del Rio and the queens of RuPaul's Drag Race thought to say it, Jesus himself says to Peter, Not today, Satan. The temptation to assign evil intent to Peter here is strong. And this passage has often been preached with pointed pastoral invectives, about missing the point because we're too busy trying to protect our own power, prestige, or preferences for the kingdom as we will it to be. 
Many of us fall victim to placing blame on poor, as Pastor KC says, boneheaded Peter, who apparently is so selfish that he simply cannot see what Jesus is up to. And in doing so, we miss the point. Now, any interpretation of this text must take into account three important elements in its construction. First, the passage begins the third and final phase of Jesus' ministry, moving now that his messianic identity is revealed toward the crucifixion and resurrection, as he makes plain to Peter's great chagrin. Second, that this shift marks a moment in Jesus' ministry when Jesus actively begins to prepare the disciples for ministry together in which he will not be physically present and begins to instruct them on what will be expected of them as they carry out ministry in his name in the world. And third, this phase of ministry ends as it began in the fourth chapter of Matthew, with Jesus encountering, now personified in the words of Peter, Satan. Here, as in chapter four, Satan, literally translated the adversary or adversaries, represents anything opposed to the flourishing of God's kingdom vision. In this case, the adversarial attitudes of human fear, discomfort with confronting our own stuff, and preference for security that Peter espouses when Jesus shares he must suffer and die. Peter was not possessed by some evil spirit, but rather wrestling as did Jesus before him and the church still does, with the natural and human temptation to avoid the risks inherent in drawing close to God's will for us and the world. The desire to look away from suffering, the preference to pointedly look past the possibility of pain. Make no mistake, Jesus is not canceling Peter. In fact, he does the opposite. Peter is still the rock, y'all. He's still got the keys, and spoiler alert, this isn't the last time he's going to drop the ball or miss the point. Instead, Jesus identifies for Peter the parts of his thinking that prevent his participation in what God is up to, literally saying, not today, Satan, to the small-minded, fear-based, suffering-averse attitudes standing between him and receiving in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection the full measure of God's love. This isn't about Jesus canceling Peter. It's about Jesus liberating Peter. It's not about ending the conversation, cutting off contact, or even shame-based motivation. It's about an invitation beyond his misunderstanding, whether conscious or not, into a more faithful way of traveling the path of discipleship. You know, I've wondered, as I've considered Peter's story anew this week, If God's greatest gift to the church in these moments, then, is not the power to push through pandemic, having preserved familiar institutions and attitudes, but is rather the image of Jesus rocked back on his heels with a glimmer in his eye saying to us, not today, Satan, not today. Because if we're to be honest, all of us have been unwitting adversaries to the radical way of the backwater brown-skinned rabbi to whom we've given our lives. Like Peter, we prefer the comfortable Christ of our own understanding, a no longer bloody post-Easter Jesus whose wounds are an afterthought, not a necessary part of God's world-turning, empire-upending salvation. 
Of course, discipleship as simple adherence to a set of moral and ethical frameworks lived out in the context of complicated denominational structures is safer. Such belief is bounded by the walls of our personal preference, demands only that which we're willing to give, and creates opportunity for a Christian cancel culture which grants us the ability to rebuke without remorse anything that challenges our preferred way of being. Like Peter, we can easily reduce Jesus to a pocket savior we pull out on demand, proudly staking a claim for Jesus and whatever pet project, personal mission, or political preference we fancy. But that's not who Christ called us to be, is it? If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. The way of Christ demands both living and dying, suffering and healing, to establish the relational economy of love laid out for us so plainly in Romans 12. Christian discipleship, then, is the Messiah's invitation to turn toward suffering and look upon its face, whether that of Jesus on Golgotha or Breonna Taylor or Jacob Blake, and to turn away from, literally repent of, our tendency to excuse our complicity in it, to control the narrative about it, or pretend as if it's not our problem. This is why we say their names. This is why the gospel can't be condensed to a personal relationship with my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, or a comfortable, navel-gazing ethic concerned mostly about canceling anything or anyone with whom it disagrees. Because the face of the crucified Christ we are called to turn toward, and indeed to whom we have sworn our lives, is the face of every black and brown body broken on the wheel of state-sanctioned violence is the face of every LGBTQIA person of color, denied agency in their own stories by the privilege of white queer people like me, is the face of every child cowering behind cages at our nation's borders, and it's Peter's face too. The one who stood in the crowd who cried crucify and said nothing. The one so scorned in today's passage who yet kept trying anyway the one who is both rock and stumbling block, and in whose journey we begin to see how powerful the redemptive love of God can be when we are willing to turn toward and not away from. Jesus' rebuke in today's passage is the first step and one to which we must often return in the journey of discipleship. We still need Christ to say, not today, Satan, when we'll protest state-sanctioned violence against black and brown people and extend compassion only if they didn't have a criminal record or warrant for their arrest or have the appropriate paperwork. We still need Christ to say, not today, Satan, to the covert racism and implicit bias fueling our disease when people call out the white Jesuses hung on our church parlor walls and affixed at the front of our sanctuaries preferring to turn away from the stereotypes they perpetuate and the bad theology they embody, let alone the fact that, surprise, Jesus wasn't white. 
We still need Christ to say, not today, Satan, to our denominational statements and congregational commitments and advocacy efforts that leave uninterrogated our participation in unjust economic systems. Because here's the deal. If we can protest and say Black Lives Matter on Monday and then not consider the profound economic inequality Black business owners face in this country and shop at Black-owned businesses on Tuesday, we've missed the point. We still need Christ to say, not today, Satan, to the voices of our fear, anxiety, self-sabotaging doubt, and self-loathing that undermine our worth as God's beloved. Not today, when all we can do is think we're not enough. Not today, when we refuse to give ourselves space to grieve or rest or play or be. Not today, when we fail to grant ourselves or others the same margin of grace with which Christ says to Peter both, not today, Satan, and you are the rock. You know, it wasn't until I read this passage again that I realized immediately, immediately after rebuking Peter, Jesus reinvites all of his disciples, Peter included, into the work that lay ahead. If any would follow me. And that, friends, may be the most powerful good news in today's text. That this rebuke, not today, Satan, isn't about us not being enough or incapable or unworthy but is instead a reminder of the a reminder of a reinvitation into the kingdom vision to which we're called if in the rebuke we are made to acknowledge the places where we've fallen short to release the tired and death-dealing attitudes and orientations that weigh us down then in their release we find once more Christ still standing on the other side of it ready to journey with us a little deeper into the work, a little closer to the kingdom, a little more able than we were before to be the suffering and resurrected body of Christ. Saying not today is not cancellation. It's sanctification, that gift of God's grace through which we are able to be a little better, to do a little better each day, precisely because it's followed by divine invitation. And it's a reminder that the journey to which we're called isn't so much about a singular encounter with the living God, but an ongoing conversation between us and that God through which, by God's grace, we are able to both confront the adversarial attitudes of our lives and to trust that in rebuking them, God does not leave or forsake us, but rather liberates and releases us for fuller and deeper living. And Peter? Well, friends, I can think of no better companion to have ended this sermon series with. Because Peter, whether walking on water or sinking beneath the waves, whether the rock or the stumbling block, shows us what a close encounter with the living God is really all about. Peter, for all his perfect imperfections, draws close, screws it up, falls away, and yet still draws close again. Engage, rebuke, release, repeat. That's what a close encounter with the living God is all about, I think. Not just the high of having witnessed the miraculous, 
the comforting knowledge that God is with us of the rebuke of that which is broken or imperfect, either in us or the world. But the lifelong intentional journey we make with God in which each day we are transformed, even if just a little, into a slightly more perfect witness to God's love. This is why we do the work, not because we're always going to get it right, but because we trust that when we don't, Jesus will be waiting on the other side of that mistake, ready to help us try again. This is why we show up, even when it's hard and messy and we're tired, because we know that Christ goes with us through the suffering, not around the suffering, not away from the suffering, but through the suffering. And that where Christ goes, life will always, always win. This is why we confront the truth, whether through the challenge of things like our journey to racial justice or owning and telling the fractured history between John Wesley, AME Zion, Asbury UMC, and Foundry, three churches originally one, split by the impacts of institutional racism. Because we know that when we confront, rather than turn away from the pain and discomfort and dis-ease so present in our world, God is faithful to bringing life out of death and hope out of sorrow. We do it, my friends, because the closest encounter the vast majority of people on the face of this earth will ever have with God is not going to be in a burning bush where skies rent asunder by angel choir but in the ways that you and I actively continue to put ourselves in the way of the Christ, who both hands us the keys to the kingdom and unabashedly calls us out when we fail to put them to good use. And because we know, we know that when we fail, falter, or forget, even then, what awaits us is not messianic cancellation, but an invitation to draw close, even as God draws close to us, and to try again and again and again. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.